have any questions to from our discussion of the previous days? question was, if you kill a chicken, it makes maybe two meals. If you kill a cow, it makes hundreds of meals. So is it more compassionate to kill a cow? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> If it can get at them, there's a lot of chickens that can't eat insects because they live in little cages. I know. If you look at the way those chickens are raised, maybe it's more humanitarian, it's more humane to kill them. <laughs> These cows wander around outside in the sun and fresh air and they're happy. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, this is, to live means that other life is destroyed. People become vegetarians because of the idea that that if they eat meat, then more meat is grown, more animals are grown and killed in order to keep the supply up, and that makes sense. It's very logical, you know, and it's a very uh, if you if you eat meat and uh, in in your heart there is that awareness that this was once a living animal that's killed, then uh, you know, and you have that feeling, then you probably should not eat the meat. But the truth is that if you eat soybeans or wheat or corn or anything else, thousands and thousands of organisms are killed in the process of raising these crops. So, I mean, you could look at it and say, instead of comparing chicken two meals, cow yeah. 200 meals, uh, uh, you know, that uh, one, one life each, uh, a, a field of soybeans, you know, I'm not sure how many meals that is. Maybe it's 2,000 meals. But in the other case, one life was lost with, uh, with a cow. You know, in this other case, uh, uncountable numbers of animals of all different sizes died in order to grow that crop. So, there's not, in other words, there's not a simple answer. There is no simple answer. You have to follow your heart and your conscience. And uh, whatever, whatever you end up doing, if you're following your heart and your conscience, uh, it's the right thing. So. The only thing the Buddha did explicitly say 
is don't kill an animal in order to eat it, and don't have an animal killed specifically for you to eat it. And you can see that, yeah. yes, that's... Because, you know, they did alms around, so if someone gave them meat... They, they would, would eat it, it, yes. That's right. But many, many people are vegetarians because of their concern about the harm it does to uh, destroy pigs and cows and things like that. So many people have made the decision that one particular way. Others go the other way. I think it was a question of a hand up over here first. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Although the Buddha never encouraged uh, uh, vegetarianism, but, but it seems like he takes eating extraordinarily seriously. He used the analogy of, of you know, crossing the desert. You know, the parents have to kill their son, jerking him. Could, could you speak a little louder? I can't oh, hear you. Okay, sure. Uh, Buddha seems to take uh, eating extraordinarily seriously. You know, on top of you know only eating one meal a day, on ground, no storage of food. He also you know uh, told the story of uh, you know we should look at food as as you know like parents crossing the desert, having to kill their only precious son and jerking him, and uh, <laughs> and, and, and to cross the desert to survive, you, you, you do so. It, it seems it's very, very extreme, but it seems like he's trying to drive a point that's very important. And I'm wondering if you can tell more about, you know, why is this so important? Is it because of when we eat, we, you know, we exert, you know, we, we, sh we have a lot of greed most of the time. That's one one place that, you know, we agree to run well, wild very easily. That's certainly, uh, that's certainly true, and I think that must, uh, very likely be a bit part of the reason because yes, we have a lot of desire and greed uh, around food, and uh, you know people can be very fussy even when they're hungry. They can you know be fussy and not want to eat certain things because uh, they like the taste of something else better. So uh, certainly the body needs to be fed. So the importance of food. Uh, from a spiritual point of view, has to do with the attitudes and motivations that arise in associating with, association with eating it. So it would be greed and aversion, things like that. He also said it's not meant for purification, putting up bulk and all that stuff. It, it, seem, it seems like his race, you know, he, he does talk a lot, quite a bit about it. Yeah. I, I never, you know, that's interesting. I never thought that much about how much the Buddha may have spoken about food specifically. It comes up, you know, as a part of the daily life that's described in the suttas, and it comes up as, in, uh, you know, in various analogies and uh, various examples. But, uh, yeah, I never really thought about it in detail specifically. I see. Because, you know, when I eat food, typically I'm kind of greedy. You know, I, I go, I, I get the stuff yeah. that I like to eat. One of the biggest reasons why I'm not a vegetarian because I do have a lot of attachment to mm -hmm. eating meat. And yes. it's not because I'm, you know, I have a conscientious choice. I think that, oh, you know, I'm killing one instead of a million. But the thing is, you know, there's always other arguments. I think, you know, there's a hierarchy of sentient beings, and, you know, cow being a mammal has a, probably a lot more um, comprehension, understanding, awareness than like lower life form life. 
like maybe a maybe fish. Maybe fish or insect, etc. You know, it, it, the, the, my, 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 my reason for eating meat is not because of it. Is this important? That, that we are very careful about the idea of eating? It is very important that you are very mindful of what is going on in your own mind and your motivations. So uh, that's what's very important. And that translates, of course, you're not unusual in uh, having a lot of uh, greed associated with food, a lot of attachment associated with food. That's almost everyone does. So that automatically makes eating an important part of practice. I just, I just feel like there becomes such an identification with what people eat that sometimes that's more, you know, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a this, I'm a that. That's, know. yes, that's for, yes, you're right. That's another side of it. You know, you can get very self-righteous about what you eat. Because yeah. I was a and that's self-righteous <laughs> What? I was once a self-righteous vegetarian. I was yeah. a whole year. Right, you know, and that's... <laughs> uh, that, that's another way our attitudes towards uh, food could be a problem. So, yeah. Yeah. It's the right, right thing or the wrong attitude. So sitting there in judgment on everybody else, I'm so much better than you because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> well, it's not late. Maybe she is better than me because yeah. she's willing to give up certain things for what, he, what she believes in. Um. <laughs> I was concerned about identification with what you yeah. That's right. That reinforces self-identification. It's all part of this yeah, idea of who I am. Conceit. So, yeah. Did you still have a question? I just have a comment. Um, the problem that I have with, with meat, I'm, I'm like 80-90% vegetarian, and it's because the process of the killing of the child that we see sometimes on television, that they, they suffer so yeah. much. Just the process that when they kill them, I have a hard time with it. Uh, it's good sometimes to find, if you can find a farmer that has, a, a, you know, natural mm-hmm. growing cows and uh, it's better to eat that meat because the hormones that they inject on these animals after or before, right. the chickens, the way they have, like, little slaves and they don't really run around and, and, and all the bacteria that chickens carry also. Well, there's, there is another important point, and maybe this is something to consider. Even if you don't give up eating meat, you could make a decision to uh, only eat meat from animals that have been humanely treated and raised, because you know the, the way that factory chickens are raised, that, that's worse than killing them, is, is that they have a whole life that is such a, you know, the, the chickens get, the, when they're little chicks, they get their beaks burnt off, and then they live their whole life on a little cage. They can't move. They're just fed until they're big enough to be slaughtered. They, they cut their pigs when they're alive, the chickens. Yeah, yeah they cut them when they're little, little babies, so yeah. they uh, so they don't so they don't damage the product. <laughs> and pigs the same way. You know, pigs are uh, many pig farms. That's very the, the pigs are raised in the same thing. A little cage is barely big enough that they can fit in. So. You know, even if you don't become a vegetarian, you could choose to eat uh, meat that you know has come from animals who have at least had a, a, some quality of life and were not terribly abused for their whole life before they were killed. So, 
must be because we're just right after supper time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Jesse was first, and then I No, I just want to ask you, have we, we finished all the class? No, we haven't. Well, no, because we can go on for many, many weeks here. Yeah. I think we think it was shifted. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the subject did get shifted. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like that. Yeah. But here's the last comment, and then we'll maybe get more focused. Yeah. Um, when you talk about being a vegetarian, I just want to share my personal experience. Before, um, I just like Michael, I love meat a lot, and I don't eat vegetables. And, but, until um, last year, no, two years ago, I started to um, read a sutra and uh, repeat a mantra every day. It's kind of like my homework. When I start, I cannot eat meat, and I start to eat vegetable. And when I eat meat, I will vomit and diarrhea. I think that's weird because I just love meat a lot, but that keeps happening, and then when I go to a supermarket, I cannot even see a fish or crab laying in the pet. I would feel I want to cry. And so now when I go to a supermarket, I don't know the seafood side or the meat side. So if you want to be a vegetarian, maybe you can try this way. And my husband, he cannot, uh, since we married, and I asked him to write a uh, copy of Sutra every day. So just a couple months now, he just become a vegetarian. So I, I don't know. I believe that's a magic power from the sutra or the mantra. I do everything. <coughs> so if you want, you can try. Okay, is this on the same topic? Or I just want to give some advice. Yeah, my brother is a big meat eater. Uh, he doesn't eat much vegetables. I don't know if he's a vegetable. My brother got gout and became paralyzed for a whole year. And, uh, and gout, if you don't catch it on time, uh, you will be paralyzed. And it's very hard to cure. I see. I eat a lot of vegetables, though. That's what helps you. But uh, my brother is a lot too much okay. And he, he was paralyzed for a year until you just. Okay, that's, that's good. Back a little more on track. This started off not too much off track, but it's getting, you know, gout's getting pretty far. So. <laughs> How to become a vegetarian was getting pretty far. But making decisions about that, you know, that that's that that we started off on track. Making decisions about what you do, paying attention. So, uh, what we could talk about, I think, is is the path to awakening. And you know, it, it said that the path is good in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. So, it's uh, to follow the path provides immediate rewards uh, as well as the long-term reward of being the path to enlightenment or awakening. <clears throat> so that's something I think would be good for us to look at. The, the foundation of the path, the very beginning of the path, is to uh, adopt a life of virtue, to take precepts and keep the precepts and to follow the uh, uh, eightfold path in its injunctions to uh, practice uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So 
we would be very correct in saying that uh, the practice of virtue is the beginning of the path to awakening. And indeed, I think I mentioned this before, the other parts of the path, meditation and wisdom, uh, require that uh, virtue be practiced before you can uh, truly master these aspects of the path. So we'll talk about virtue first. Virtue means keeping precepts and following the part of the Eightfold Path, as I said. And if we look at those, uh, we see that the result of keeping the precepts is that we cease to do those things that are harmful to other people. So if you look at right speech, right action, and right livelihood, you'll see that they all, and I said other people, I should have said other beings, other people and other beings, other people. If you look at them, you'll see that this is the common denominator of them all. Uh, not harming, well, that's a pretty obvious one, but uh, not taking what's not given. Um, avoiding sexual misconduct. Um, not engaging in false speech. False speech is always harmful. Divisive speech, harsh speech, and gossip where we entertain ourselves at the expense of others. And right livelihood is avoiding sources of livelihood that cause harm to other beings, like raising animals for slaughter or things like that, selling weapons. But if we begin to practice virtue in our life, it requires that we be mindful in order to change the patterns of your behavior, you need to, to be mindful and be aware. If you, are, if you are a person who sometimes engages in false speech, then the only way you can change that is to be aware of it when you do it. And if you are aware of it, then you can uh, choose to refrain from engaging in false speech. If you're mindful enough to be aware when you're about to uh, perform an unwholesome action, you are also mindful enough that you can begin to notice where the inclination to do these kinds of things comes from. And it comes from craving, it comes from desire and aversion. Any impulse you have comes from desire and aversion. You know, we engage in divisive speech, talking about somebody behind their back. Well, it's because we have anger and aversion. We want to hurt them. So, on the one hand, you begin to engage in much more, you, you begin to cease to engage in unwholesome activities and be a more wholesome person, which has its positive results right away. But the same mindfulness that allows you to do that allows you to begin to discover the extent to which craving, desire, and aversion are present. So it's a very useful tool in this way. The practice of virtue is a tool for gaining greater insight into the motivations behind your behavior. 
talk about being unwholesome to yourself, you know, or yes. being unhealthy or whatever? Yes, as a matter of fact, that, that's made clear uh, uh, in uh, a number of ways. Yes, the, the idea applies equally to, to yourself. As a matter of fact, the direction you're going is in making less distinction than you already do between yourself and others. So that uh, anything that you would do that uh, uh, would be harmful to yourself, then you likewise cease to do. As a matter of fact, all unvirtuous acts are harmful to yourself. Right. So that's why you don't want to do it. Well, this is directly related to what you're talking about, and this all still has to do with eating. Because, <laughs> because you know, that's what we do uh, two to three times a day. And, uh, and if we participate in, in harming a lot of living, you know, living beings, then we're really breaking the precepts every single meal. And um, I don't know, but, and, and at the same time, you know, animals are raised on, raised on crops and on top of the, 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 the insects that's being killed for the crops. Now the animal kills yeah. you. So, so I think, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't be, actually, I shouldn't even brought this up. You know. <laughs> I'm just going to carry this to a different place. That, that no, it's not really. Because, let's look at what practicing virtue means. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a list of very specific rules. They're very general rules. And they're not stated thou shalt not or anything like that. It said that you're going to do your best to refrain from and then it's generally stated. So what this means is that there is no condemnation implied in your failure to keep the precepts. You're practicing perfecting your virtue as long as you keep making the effort to do better. So there's no need to condemn yourself for your for your failures. There's no reason to condemn yourself for your lapses. But when you discover that you have had a lapse, you should should renew and re-strengthen the vigor of your intention not to do so in the future. The other thing is as you're going along and as you <coughs> become more skillful in keeping your virtue than your standards of what what these particular precepts are referring to changes. So in the beginning, when you you take the precept to refrain from taking what is not given, in the beginning that could mean you're going to give up armed robbery once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> Having succeeded at that, you might move on to uh, giving up a lot of other petty theft along the way. And having succeeded in giving that, you might stop stealing pens and paper clips from the office you work at. You know. Not anymore. You've given up the night job. So. Uh, uh, and uh, and then at some point, uh, you may decide that refraining taking from what not, what's not given means 
when you go out in the morning and for some reason or another your paper's not there but your neighbor's is, then you take theirs. Or I may get to, to, I mean, there are many ways of, of interpreting taking what is not given. <clears throat> you know, uh, if you're a, a business person and you're dealing with somebody who obviously doesn't know as much about the value of what you're exchanging as you do, taking what is not given could be treating them fairly in spite of the temptation to make an extra 10% on this business deal. You know. um, it could mean little things like uh, when there's just one piece of cake left, you know, you offer it to somebody else instead of taking it yourself. There's, there's so many different ways. And if you practice, if you practice precepts, if you practice virtue, <clears throat> then you'll, you'll redefine the meaning of this as, you, as it goes along. At some point, it can go beyond simply not taking things that are others. I mean, it can go to uh, protecting the property of others. It can even begin to become generosity, you know, giving rather than taking. So uh, it is a, it's a tool for developing yourself. And this is the same thing is true of all of the precepts. Uh, sexual misconduct. Well, if you look at how it's de formally defined, it means not committing adultery and sexual abuse. But you go beyond that, it can be not uh, exploiting other people by means of sexuality. Or it could be, uh, you, you could drop the physical interpretation of it and say, well, in all of my relationships with others, you know, there are various kinds of manipulative and controlling behaviors that we can engage in. And these are really of the same kind that sexual misconduct is. And recognizing that, decide that, well, if I'm going to keep this precept, I'm going to give up those behaviors as well. You see what I'm saying? So, all right, so the, you know, you can continue to deepen your interpretation of this and become more and more virtuous in more profound ways. Uh, and it's up to you. It's a tool for you to use. Uh, the reason that you would do this, why would you do this? Well, the reason you do this is that anytime you commit activities that are based in uh, uh, desire and aversion, you are creating more bad karma for yourself. We talked about that, right? So when you, in order for you to do any of these un unwholesome activities, there has to be an attachment to I and some desire and aversion growing out of that. And so when you allow that to happen, you are creating karma that is going to come back on you. You are going to be, you're going to be more likely to do similar things in the future. So you are harming yourself when you don't maintain your virtue. You can learn about yourself. You can learn to understand more and more the different subtle forms that attachment to self and craving take in your life, which you might never become aware of if all of your mindfulness practice was watching your breath and watching the soles of your feet. When you start 
watching your behaviors and your interactions with people, using virtue as a guideline, then you start discovering a, a much a, a deeper understanding of some, some of these uh, very important factors uh, in the spiritual path. Yes? How about uh, gay people that was being criticized for sexual misconduct and people are in love with each other uh, and it's been happening for many, many hundreds of years. Why, you know, why are they still being criticized for being gay? Because it's never going to go away. Well, we, we can talk a lot about why people are like that, but I don't think we need to... The thing is, though, that what is sexual misconduct? Well, if, it's, if it is harmful to somebody else in any way, it's definitely misconduct. If it's not harmful to someone else, then it wouldn't be failing to keep the precept, right? So why other people are severely afflicted, afflicted with aversion and hatred and judgment and things like that is not our concern tonight. Our concern is to see how we can improve ourselves. Yeah. All the precepts are uh, are um, attacks on uh, greed that costs harm and says all greed costs harm. So really, we can really just come up with one precept, you know, which means, um, which, which is, you know, guard against our greed, you know, because <laughs> our greed always costs harm. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it's just, you know, gradually marching down to no greed. Yeah. I, I agree with you, but that's not a starting place. No, well, the place, average person. Eventually, that would be a place. The average person says, "Oh wow, okay." So, you know, I heard all this talk about, you know, suffering is caused by craving and everything. But where do I start? And that's what I'm talking about for that person. This is where you start. Here, here's a here's a list of some very simple things to begin to follow in the practice in your life. And if you follow those and practice those, then it will start to become clear. And then. You know, at some point it will become that simple that, yeah, whenever there is, whenever there's craving, craving to, to uh, respond to craving is unwholesome. Simple as that. We're trying to overcome craving. Yes. So one of the precepts is to refrain from the intoxicants that cause carelessness. Mm -hmm. There's quite a discussion in the country about wine. Yes, this is something that. I know that's food. That particular precept is one that can be very contentious. And uh, it's also one that gives rise to a lot of self-righteousness. Right. So, now, um, if you look at, you know, there, there were original, well, not originally. There are there are ten precepts that uh, the Buddha originally required people to take if they decided they were going to become a bhikkhu, if they were novices. And these were the initial rules of training, which later on, if they took full ordination as a bhikkhu, they had to follow all the rules of the Vinaya. Which are uh, of which there are several hundred. Let's see. These were the ten starting rules. If you look at those ten, um, 
Only the first five are the lay precepts, the first five that we have here. If you look at those 10, the others that are, are different here, different than this 10, they are uh, not to eat afternoon, not to sit on, uh, uh, sit on high or, or plush chairs or to sleep on high fancy beds. They are not to wear garlands and jewelries, perfumes, unguents, uh, and not to attend uh, festivals and dances and celebrations, and not to possess money. So I see coming at number five, um, this prescription against uh, intoxicants falls on a borderline between rules of training like not eating afternoon and not sitting on high beds and chairs and the four that precede it, which are very clearly, they're based in the, in the uh, virtue part of the Eightfold Path, right? right uh, uh, speech, right action. So if we examine this and also see how it's been interpreted, in some traditions of Buddhism, it's been interpreted as you know, you should not touch a drop of alcohol no matter what. And if you do, it's a sin and you'll be reborn in hell realms, uh, so on and so forth. And then there's other traditions in where it's seen that, well, the problem, if you're, if you're, if you're a bhikkhu, then you can't drink anything at all. But if you're a lay person, what is the purpose of this? And it's really, it's more in the uh, part of that precept about causing carelessness or heedlessness or losing mindfulness. This is harmful both to you and to others. If you consume enough alcohol that it impairs your judgment, you may not be able to keep the preceding four precepts. And if you use enough alcohol that it impairs your mindfulness, then uh, you will do harm to yourself in other ways, even if you still do somehow manage to maintain your virtue. So you see, it's a, it's a good precept. But does it need to be interpreted with absolute rigidity? Could you be a good Buddhist, take the five lay precepts, <coughs> and still have a glass of wine? And in fact, there's no reason why you couldn't. On the other hand, if we look at this and say, well, yes, it would be, it would be the, the real problem isn't that there's something that alcohols has some magically evil quality that will taint you if it enters your body in any form. It's that uh, if, you, if you have very much of it, it's going to affect the way your mind works. In that case, we look at it and say, well, yes, there's a whole lot of other drugs that do that too. So it's not just alcohol. It's anything that would uh, impair your judgment and your mindfulness. And then you think about that a little further, and there's other things, too. Um, playing computer games for 10 hours can really... You know, yeah, it's, it's like an intoxicant. Uh, there, there are all kinds of things. So I think the way that I would recommend that this particular precept be regarded is, is care for your mind and care for your mindfulness 
and don't impair it in any way by lack of sleep, by computer games, by hanging out with people who are not good companions, <coughs> drinking alcohol, using drugs, they're all the same in that way. So, but once again, it's up to the individual. And uh, one thing's for sure, no one is going to be harmed by not drinking. Well, one thing that's uh, an issue with all the precepts, and it comes up in this particular one <coughs> more so, is whether it's hard and fast or whether it's more avoid. You know? And I, it, you see different words that typically is avoid, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, at Shulai Temple, you know, sometimes they try to seem to adopt a more hard and fast approach thinking that they're helping you out, I think, yeah. because that's the safest well, approach, yeah. right? But yeah. should you be hard and fast or should you, you know, mm -hmm. not be hard and fast? Yeah. That, you know, that's the, to me it's like the middle way. The middle way yeah. is, you know, get the idea of it, but you don't have to And it's, there is, a, in a way, this is, this is similar to the vegetarian thing, except there's no precept that says, <laughs> I endeavor to refrain from eating meat. But it has all the same qualities. It's, you have to look at it from, uh, you have to look at it from the point of view of, of the effects that it has on you. And, your ethical, your ethical judgment of it. You know, if a glass of wine has absolutely no effect on your judgment and your mental abilities, you know, then if you don't feel like you're violating the precept by drinking a glass of wine, who is anyone else in the world to judge? And if you if you drink two or three glasses of wine, you are definitely going to, you know, <laughs> you're going to be able to tell the difference. And you should have a mindfulness to realize this. But the idea is that nobody else, it's not the job of somebody else to condemn you. All the, all the people at the temple or any of the teachers or anything else can do is provide you guidance. You know? And they're providing you the best guidance you can. But in the end, it's up to you. The same thing with stealing. Does that include taking pens from work? Everybody else does it. The boss knows you do it. The boss buys extra pens, boss budgets for the fact that, that one out of every three pens is going to go out the door in somebody's pocket and isn't worried about it. So should I be worried about it? You have to decide this yourself. But it's a good, it's a, yeah, it's a good, topic to talk about. It's a good thing to think about. Um, the important thing is, and, and I think this is the reason why these rules generally aren't set down in such a very precise, you know, and follow the letter of the law way, is because their value comes from the fact that you must take responsibility yourself for interpreting them and understanding them. 
And so this one particular precept is stated in an absolute way because it comes from a tradition, from the bhikkhu tradition. So when we carry it over to as a lay precept, I think we uh, can reasonably say that uh, it is a personal choice. Regarding to Neil's uh, question about being extreme, I'm just wondering, you know, there's uh, absolutely, if, if we do too much of what the priests have asked of us, we, like for example, if the next day one of us decides to, you know, uh, to donate the entire life saving to Red Cross, and, you know, the, the following day maybe they'll get a divorce paper from their spouse too. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll, I'll pre I'm pretty sure that's going to cause a lot of misery too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's up to our internal spiritual growth to decide how far we take it. Yeah. So do you think we step back every time we, every time, like I like to have beer yeah. in summertime only yeah. when I go hiking. <laughs> and then I want to sit down and meditate. So do you think I step back if I do things like that? You mean, do I think it's going to affect your meditation? Um, I think I'll meditate a little bit better sometimes. <laughs> 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 no, I'm taking it spiritually. Do you think it takes you back? Uh, um, because you are mindfulness, but if you have like, two beers hiking, and then you go sit down and meditate, you think you step back in your... The whole point is uh, of, of this is, uh, and this is this is the really the important part. How a beer affects you may not be the same way as how it affects somebody else. If it has a bad effect on your meditation, well, then definitely you should not drink it. If you drink a beer and it has any other bad effect on your your mindfulness or your ability to maintain your virtue or anything, then definitely you should not drink it. Right? But in any other sense, there is no Buddha sitting in his heaven keeping score. Ah, Lachicha, drink a beer. Okay, minus one point. <laughs> the, it's, it's the effect that it has on you. And you know, if you pay attention, you know. And if you stop paying attention, then then you'll lose, you'll lose all other aspects of the virtue as well. So every time you have, a, if you take these precepts though, it means that uh, every time you have a beer, you know, you have to decide whether you're keeping the precepts, uh, if you, whether, whether drinking the beer, you still feel like it's consistent with the precepts or not, right? So, and if you're mindful, and if the conclusion you come to is that it's not, and if you continue to be mindful, and you satisfy yourself that yes, uh, I drank this beer, and yes, uh, nothing bad came from it, it didn't affect my practice or my mindfulness, then there's no problem. At least from my point of view, there's no problem. <laughs> yes? 
mental formation is kind of like a warehouse. Yes, right? that's right. So I'm thinking if Lakisha could have beer, then she put more beer in the mental, like the warehouse. That, that is, that is uh, the, the really, what you do is you, you form habitual behavior. So yeah. if you decide it's all right to have a beer, then you'll, you know, that becomes more and more habitual. And so you might decide two beers are all right, a six pack's all right, yeah. a dozen, what the heck. <laughs> but you get the point. <laughs> but I did experience the last time that we took on the college of the West. Um, my friends invited me to their house uh, like a week after from the class, and then the whole week I was like, I felt very magical, very high spirit. And after I had three beers, when I drove home, I was a total I was very upset that See? I broke. I felt the difference, and I was very disappointed in myself. That's good. Yeah. Um, so you saw that? And yeah, I felt it. Yeah. I was I was very upset when I drove yeah. home. And I was like, I, I broke the magic that I was feeling physically. Okay. And yeah, I understand what you're saying. Well, this, I believe that it's very important for every layperson who takes this precept to keep in mind very carefully, you know, when, whenever they drink. But at the same time, you know, I am not one to say, and I don't think anybody else is, that there is anything automatically spiritually wrong with the very moderate consumption of alcohol. So... Uh, I'm not going to judge someone because of it. And I don't think anybody else should either. That's, that's the thing. That it is very much something for an individual layperson. Now, if you are going to take, take vows, take robes, then there is no question about it. There is no mistake. It's really clear that if you're taking robes, that this is not just a question of, th this is a part of discipline. It's like not eating after midday. There is... It, it, there is not uh, the rule about not eating after midday uh, is helpful in some ways. It keeps you from wasting a lot of time running around collecting food and preparing food. So it contributes to your spiritual practice. It gives you many hours during the day when you don't have a lot of food in your stomach, which makes you more sluggish and, and impairs your meditation. So there are good things that come from not eating after midday. But Eating at mid, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with eating a sandwich at two o'clock in the afternoon at all. It exists as a rule of discipline, partly because it conveys a certain benefit, but also partly because of the simple. It simply involves discipline, and many of the rules for monks uh, and nuns are like that. They are that gives them the opportunity to practice a high level of discipline, even though the things that they're refraining from doing don't ne aren't necessarily that important in themselves. They're just discipline. So a layperson could regard this the same way. Though. Not consuming alcohol would be an example of discipline. Anyway, the important thing is you keep the precepts as best you can, and if you're practicing properly, you will continue refining what that means for yourself. And it, they will serve as a tool to improve your mindfulness, and they will advance you along the path. They will, they will make your life better, because a person who, uh, 
a, a person who is virtuous is liked and res more liked and respected and better treated by the world. Especially, it will give you ease of mind. It will free your mind from all kinds of worry and regret and other sources of agitation. If you follow, if you follow precepts and you live the best that you can, you will have wonderful, peaceful mind. And so it's a tremendous benefit to your practice in that way. So the next part of following the path beyond just being virtuous has to do with practicing. Of course, you have to practice mindfulness to be virtuous. And it would be very frustrating if you go out and if you take precepts and you go out in the world and say, I'm going to keep these precepts and then, you know, you haven't trained yourself in mindfulness and you're always breaking them and you're becoming discouraged and frustrated and blaming yourself and things like that. So you have to practice mindfulness, which means that you have to develop some skill in mindfulness and meditation comes in there too. Uh, the whole category of meditation includes uh, right mindfulness, right concentration, but it also includes right effort. And right effort is uh, right effort is described as uh, causing of liberating yourself from unwholesome mindful states or unwholesome states of mind that have arisen. So when you find yourself with an unwholesome state of mind then you do what you can to free yourself from it. Likewise, you prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. In addition to that, wholesome mental states that have arisen, you preserve and maintain them. And wholesome mental states that have not arisen yet, you, cause, you do what you can to cause them to arise. Simple formula, right? And in uh, <clears throat> one of the sutras is called the Sutra of the Two Kinds of Thoughts. The Buddha said that when he was uh, when he was a bodhisattva, when he was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to him that he should take his thoughts, or you could say motivations and divide them into two kinds. <clears throat> and one, one kind were wholesome thoughts and the other kind were unwholesome thoughts. And the wholesome thoughts were thoughts of sensual desire. Did I say wholesome or unwholesome? Unwholesome thoughts were thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and uh, uh, harmfulness. And the wholesome thoughts were their opposites. So they were renunciation of desire, uh, they were goodwill towards others, and they were thoughts of uh, loving kindness and compassion. And he said, he described his practice in this way. He said, when I saw that thoughts of sensual desire had arisen in me, I examined them with mindfulness and I saw that this thought was an affliction to me 
that it was an affliction to others, that it was not helpful, and that it led away from awakening and not towards awakening. And if you look at that, okay, this is why it makes a difference. When you look mindfully at the thought, at the unwholesome thought, the thought of desire, and looking mindfully, if you see clearly that indeed this thought of desire is creating problems for you, it's adding to your suffering. And you're clearly aware of that. This then becomes imprinted on your mind because you have seen it very clearly. When you see that this kind of thought leads to uh, actions that are harmful to others, that are an affliction to others, the same thing. That becomes an imprint. And uh, when you see that it is, if you wish to become awakened, free from suffering, and you see that this is leading you away from it, when your mindfulness sees this very clearly, then the combination of these things is going to cause this thought to go away, to be released, to be more easily released, right? So the same is true of thoughts of ill will and thoughts of, of, uh, uh, of doing some kind of harm to others. Yes? So if everybody were enlightened tomorrow, then there'd be no more babies? And, uh, Why would there be no more babies? Well, because some can eat sexual desire and, you know, <laughs> Uh, well, with all the sexual desire that we have in the world now, we have too many babies. I know. So, I mean, at one point in the history of the world, sexual desire was a good way to go about making sure there was a steady supply of babies. But you don't have to have sexual desire. You can, you know, remember a Buddha, a Buddha's body functions as well as anybody else's. There's no reason that the Buddha couldn't have sex, but it, it would mean that they wouldn't be having sex out of desire, out of craving. Well, are you sure you're right? <laughs> yeah. This is, this is an interesting discussion that I had uh, uh, on the internet at one point. I, I said, a Buddha could have sex as long as it was for a beneficial purpose, and this upset a lot of people. No, 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 Buddhists don't do things like that. <laughs> Our hearts don't do things like that. <laughs> but if, uh, if there was a good, you know, I mean, the presupposition would be that there would be, it would be clearly beneficial thing to do. You have the physiological changes. You have to have desire, wouldn't it? Wouldn't yeah, it? that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's you why you want to say. You don't yeah. want to say in a way that's kind of loop. <laughs> no, actually, actually, yeah. No, it seems that way, but that's because you have so much desire. If you had less desire, you'd realize that no, you only need. I mean, it's a, it's a physiological reflex, and uh, it involves pleasure, but it doesn't have to involve desire. So, but anyway, let me just, you know, I started answering this, but, you know, really it's, uh, it's an interesting question to entertain ourselves with. 
but we're in no great danger of having a world full of Buddhas. And it takes a while for somebody to become an arhat. So there's a good chance that some of them, some of them are uh, enough of them, more than enough of them, are going to still have children. We're not in danger no, I, <laughs> of no. bringing ourselves to extinction through Buddhist practice. Right. And forgive me for asking it sort of, you know, <laughs> you know always call it now, good, good if you want to be Buddhist. <laughs> Buddha is a child. Well, not before. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, what, That's right. everybody, everybody want to become enlightenment? All the future Buddhists yeah, will have yeah, a child yeah. for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not about who you have craving with or for or not. The goal of the path is to overcome craving entirely. Okay, so that raises the question. You know, it's a very natural one <clears throat> that people. Have, how could you possibly have sex without desire? Okay, so without going into it a whole lot beyond that. You can still have sex without desire. So, but uh, that would not. But that's not even relevant to the to the <laughs> question of whether the human race would go extinct because of it. So he, <laughs> so he swallowed. Uh, no, no, the Bible, um, this day he just take up. So many disciples just left him because they, they, uh, they think, oh, how come you can marry? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. that's why. So he just took out a bowl and they have many a screw or something. So he just swallowed a whole bowl and he told his disciples that, who can do like this yeah. and still alive and still healthy? So let me. He still has sex with so many women because the king forced him, but he still got enlightened. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we, we can move on. <laughs> First of all, just like the Buddha, if we were fortunate enough to have a world where everybody got enlightened, they'd still have enough kids yeah. before they got enlightened. And secondly, if for any reason any of the ones that were already Buddhas needed to, they could. Okay. <laughs> this is we have to have you know, uh, human reproduction. We can have reproduction in a different realm. It, it, yeah, it's, it, you know, in, in a different yeah. realm. It's not sexual, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. sexually appropriate. So, we should be so lucky as to have this problem. It's not the least of our worries. Absolutely, that's the least of our worries. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so to go on with the Sutra of Two Thoughts. So in, 
you see, this is this is the practice of being mindfully aware of when unwholesome thoughts arise. And if you apply your mindfulness properly, you will see directly that this is not good for you, that this doesn't serve you. You don't have to try to drive these thoughts away. You don't have to try to quash them. All you have to do is clearly examine them every time they come up and you'll see your, your mind your mind will perceive and this will change the way that you respond in the future. Likewise, the Buddha said, when there arose in me thoughts of uh, goodwill, for example, or compassion, then I examined those thoughts with mindfulness and I saw that these, these uh, thoughts were a boon and a blessing for me, and that they were a boon and a blessing for others, and that they uh, were an aid in my life, and they uh, brought me towards nirvana and not away from nirvana. And so, in the same way, when we are mindful of thoughts of generosity, goodwill, loving kindness, uh, non-desire, you know, and that's a kind of thought we have too, when, when we see something and we not only don't have desire for it, we have the experience of, oh, that's something that I might have once craved, but I have no attachment to that. Examining that state of mind with mindfulness makes the positive imprint and likewise makes it more likely that these thoughts will arise in the future. So this is how we practice right effort. This is how we carry out the practice of causing the unwholesome thoughts that have arisen to leave us and the unwholesome thoughts that have not yet arisen to not arise in the future. It's likewise how we practice uh, causing the wholesome thoughts that have arisen to remain and the wholesome ones that have not yet arisen to arise in the future. See? So... This, this is the practice to do in your daily life. And it's a, it's a natural extension of the practice of virtue. Now, in terms of the six perfections, the first four perfections are generosity, virtue, patience, and joyful effort. So, this is really what we want to practice. Virtue is the second, but generosity helps us to overcome desire. It helps us in two ways. It helps us by, first of all, making us aware of our own desires so that we can examine them with mindfulness. And then it allows us the opportunity to arouse the mental states of, of goodwill and the wish to be beneficial to others and to help those, help them. Right? Likewise, the practice of patience applies to any states of, of aversion, ill will, negativity, irritability, that when we learn to be mindful, when we realize that because our computer crashed three times and we have this important email to go out and we feel ourselves becoming irritable, Mindfulness 
allows us to look at that irritability and say, boy, this, this doesn't really help. It's not doing me any good. And as a matter of fact, if it continues, you know, I'm going to inflict my irritability on other people and other things throughout the rest of the day. I'll be miserable, they'll be, you know, and so you say, ah, better, better that I should be patient. Okay, we'll solve this problem. Either that or we'll get the neighbor to send the email, right? So this, this is the way that we practice this. The, pre per the perfection and patience, and the the perfection of joyful effort is the is practicing right effort and doing it with as much joy and happiness as you can. So, being glad that you're practicing the Dharma, being excited about the newly arisen opportunity to be mindful of annoyance. Oh, good! <laughs> I get. I've been needing to deal with this. Now I have an opportunity. amazing, but it is the power of mindfulness. How quickly it happens will depend on uh, it will depend on the consistency of looking at the same thing with mindfulness and the, the, the power and the clarity of your mindfulness because your mindfulness needs to be able to detect in its investigation that in fact this is not serving you. Well, um, I think it has to Right. But then it has to obviously, that's where the mindfulness comes in, is at the moment right. you have to recognize it then. That's right. And then apply that effort to, right. to uh, suppress a reaction. That's right. yeah. And so if I can do that 15 or 20 times, mm -hmm. then that might just be the, the corner point. That's right, yes. Well, yeah, it makes, it, it makes an, an incredible difference in See, That's helpful because you, yeah. with the karma, the whole karma thing, you get this feeling that. Okay, I've done this bad thing 50,000 times. Yeah. I have to not do it 50,000 times to be even. Isn't that great? I mean, even if you only had to do it 500 times to cancel out 50,000, what yeah, a bargain. It's a investment. It's good investment. Good investment. And that's the thing, because, you know, we... We'd really be in tough shape if we if it took just as long to undo it as yeah. it did to do it. You know, wouldn't wouldn't be very promising. What the problem is, though, and this is an important thing for me to talk to you about, is that what you'll find, you'll say, "Well, I'm going to go home and do this." What you'll find is you you forget. Yeah. You know, you, it's the same thing as meditation. I'm going to watch my breath and then. Ooh, 15 minutes have gone by, you've been daydreaming and everything. Wow, how did that happen? Well, you go home saying that you're going to be mindful of, of a particular unwholesome mental state, and next thing you know, two weeks have gone by, you've been repeating it over and over again every day, and not once did you catch yourself. So here, here is a tool for you. This, this will be really, really effective. 
uh, that one part of the tenth of the of the precepts of a dedicated lay practitioner is through daily study, meditation, and reflection. Daily reflection is very powerful. If once a day, if you want to overcome, for example, anger, but it can apply to anything, any any of the precepts, uh, any unwholesome mental state, or any group of them, you know. But say, for example, it's anger that you want to focus on. What you what you can remember to do is every day to reflect that since yesterday, since the last time you reflected, what are the occasions when anger arose that you were not mindful of it? And call them clearly to mind. And reflect on them, be mindful of them retrospectively at that time. And the effect that that has, in the beginning there may be a lot of those occasions where you didn't even think of it until you sat down to reflect. But the change that will take place is sometimes sometimes you'll remember them, you know, maybe an hour after they happened. So you'll be that much closer to them and there'll be that pressure. But sometimes you'll remember them right away. You'll remember right away. You'll realize, oh, I just I just got angry and you can practice mindfulness then. But it will it will come more quickly and more easily until you get to be on top of them. So the way that you come to have the mindfulness at the time that you do, that you need it, is you begin with systematic daily reflection and allow that to help bring you more and more towards the place of having mindfulness at the time. There is a variation on this that one group of people uses, which is that it's called the six times book. You get a little book and you carry it around with you, and six times a day you reflect, you know, uh, uh, how well you've kept the precepts since the last time you did this, which might be, you know, three, four hours ago or something like that. Right? It's the same idea. If, uh, it's wonderful for certain kinds of compulsive personalities that can carry a book around and remember to write in it. You know, you don't even need to ever read it. All you have to do is write, write down, you know, and that will, that will help you to People can blackmail you with that book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You might want to invent a little code. <laughs> or at least not write down too much detail. <laughs> So, but that's a useful tool to help you to to be mindful, and it's also helpful not to take on, not not to, uh, not to think that you're going to perfect yourself completely right away. You know, start start with the start with the things that are the biggest problems. <laughs> And put your put your energy and attention into the bigger problems, and you can save some of the lo- the smaller ones for for later on. So. Yes. Um, I have a, pa- uh, a problem with relatively pro- relative problem with patience. Um, uh, so, what are some of the strategies to deal with you know how do how do I stay patient when all the 
those circumstances are so adverse. Say I'm very sensitive to the heat, it's extremely hot, and I'm stuck in traffic, and then, you know, I have a ton of things to do, I'm really tired, and, and, and it takes like two hours to get home, and so what are the strategies to deal with this it's safe a, example? It's, it's, it's exactly... It's exactly the thing that I've been talking about. It, would serve, it serves as a very good example. So you're sitting in the car. Uh, you're, you're late. The traffic's slow. It's the hot. broken or something. You, whatever it is. Well, let's just have, for simplicity's sake, let's just have you, okay, okay, the air conditioner's broken. It'd be hot. The wind is down. Traffic's moving five miles an hour. You're supposed to be somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. So you're feeling very physically uncomfortable and impatient. So you mindfully examine the impatience. You, you, you know, you look at the, you say, I'm already hot and uncomfortable. The impatience is only making me feel worse, mm -hmm. you know. And so you can just imagine, well, what would it be like if I could just let go of this patience and just accept it? Okay, sooner or later I'm going to get where I have to be. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable for a while, but sooner or later I'll be comfortable. Well, you might even have a minute or two of actually feeling that way before the impatience comes back. So you just, you can keep watching the impatience. And you can also, uh, you, you can consider in, in the same way the Buddha did. How it affects you, how it affects others, how the impatience is not going to help you uh, become awakened and free from suffering. So just examine it while it's happening. Uh, oh, sorry. I just wanted to add, you know, um, you know, sometimes I feel like Chilodasa's mother drives me crazy. And so I have this sort of, you know, I said, I'm so impatient. You know, how do I become more patient? You know, like, I mean, how do I The other thing is that you can even learn to look at this as, as a valuable opportunity. That, well, this is a great opportunity for me yes. to examine patience and to learn to deal with it. Everything that you have suggested so far requires two critical ingredients. One is very, very good mindfulness. Yes. And one is very, very good honesty. Because we can always have that editor or that lawyer in the mind trying to yeah. Try, 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 try to like you know make things look nicer than it actually is. So, yeah. so, so you know, sustaining a clear line of mindfulness and That's being right. very, very honest—it's it, I think key too. Yes, that is absolutely true. And it's good that you mentioned that little voice in your mind because that little voice in your mind—that's that's that 
concept, that idea of the self. The self is nothing but a concept and an idea, a mental, a mental construct. I, I, we talked about that enough. But the self is right there in the middle of that, uh, how did you put it, the, um, the lawyer or what? Oh, anyway, oh. that, that's the self, that word. <laughs> that's the tyrant that is going to tell the story that's going to make your five aggregates miserable. You know, it's this imaginary... It's this imaginary being that is is whipping your four, uh, whipping your five aggregates to uh, and, and making them suffer. You know, so I hope there's no lawyers here because I'm insulted. And that's wrong speech on my part. You know, I have to be more sensitive because yeah. yeah. Sorry, I apologize, but. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I know you have good friends or yeah, lawyers, but I think I think even all of the lawyers in the room know exactly what you mean. Didn't take it yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> They probably have many bad lawyer friends. That's right. But anyway, I, I, the, when when you are when you are in those kinds of situations, see them as opportunities. You know there. That will help tremendously, right there. If you just, if you just get used to the idea, oh, good, this is a chance for me to deal with. And don't be fixed on the idea that, well, I have to make this impatience go away. No, it's not about making the impatience go away right now. Mm -hmm. The impatience will go away when it's ready to go away. Okay, That's a great good you're going to let it be, and you're going to let it go in its own due time. Mm -hmm. right? So. Uh, because otherwise, if, you, if you're practicing mindfulness with the purpose in mind, okay, I'll be mindful of it, and then it'll go away. You know, then you're not really doing the right yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you're attached to it, making it go away. And if it doesn't, then you're even more impatient. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, sorry, just very, very quickly. Um, Oh, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. For years and years, I found that very helpful. That uh, you know, your mind is, is conditioned. When you are watching your breath, you're practicing mindfulness, and you've done it in retreats and things like this. So whenever you find yourself in a difficult situation, if it's possible, watch your breaths for a few minutes, and it will help you. It will calm your mind. It will bring you into focus. It will remind you of, oh, yeah, okay, I know how to deal with this situation. So, and even, you know, you don't even have to close your eyes. You can still steer the car in traffic at five miles an hour and watch your breath, and it will help. Or meetings. I used to do this a lot in meetings. I really didn't like meetings that I had to attend. And so anytime I felt one of those mental states coming up, you know, I just watch my breath for a few minutes and let it go. You have to 
well, okay, now. Can you repeat that question? What's that? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, okay. The question is that, is, or the point that's raised is that sometimes you have to pretend not to be angry, even though you are. And that's true. But you see, as you were saying this, what I was thinking is there's two cases. There is the case where you're angry and you would have said something, and the only reason you didn't was because of your, uh, your, your practice, of your conscious intention to practice the perfection of patience. In which case, uh, you're not obligated not to appear angry, but if appearing angry would be a kind of action that would harm somebody else, you may choose, in the same way that you chose not to say something, you may choose to, you, you're not choosing not to look angry. What you're doing is you're choosing the same way you chose not to say something that was harmful to the other person. You're choosing not to project something non-verbally that would have the same effect, right? So that's one kind of case, okay? In which case your motivation is great. You, you mo and, you, and hey, even if you're not that successful, even if your body language still lets the secret out, it's better than what you would have said. Right. Okay? The other case, though, is one where this is somebody that you can't afford to have know that you're angry. Right? In that kind of situation, well, you know, your motivation for not speaking and your motivation for trying to not to appear angry is already not, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not entirely based in your uh, desire to practice perfection of patience. It's coming through not wanting the consequences that would come from this person knowing that you were angry at Like a boss or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. So it's already a mixed bag. So, well, you do the best you can, but it's going to make it more difficult because you're not doing this completely of your own free will. But you can, it, you can still, uh, you can still be as mindful as you can. You can be mindful recognizing, okay, <laughs> I, I've, I'm, I'm mostly restrained because of the situation. And then you can say, well, that's a good thing. Maybe if I hadn't been in this situation, I might not have restrained myself. So, so even if you don't succeed in acting not angry, still you'll do better than if then, you did <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So. You're just doing the best that you can. It's hard. That's very hard to do. Well, Some people are going back to the breath, I think. And, you know, going back to the breath is, and even, you know, the, the, a very old piece of advice where you get angry, count to ten before you do something. Uh, <laughs> count ten breaths, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's better, right. But the heart of the thing is, is, is the, in the situation, you are mindfully aware of your practice, and your practice is to be mindfully aware of your emotions and so forth, mental states and dealing with them. 
And don't expect too much of yourself. It may be that you can't restrain yourself, and that's all right. You just continue to be mindful. You be mindful of the things that you said that you shouldn't say. You be mindful of the way it made you feel. You be mindful of the effect it had on the other person. So you just keep being mindful. I thought it was very helpful what you said about that the fact that anger has arisen is kind of not your fault at that moment. That's right. I mean, yes, it's your fault in terms of karma that led to that, but that's already in there. So the fact that anger arose right then is not your fault yeah. right then. <coughs> that's right. That helps, I think, because it, you know, because part of a response is Yes, it, it's very important to have that in mind. Because the self that created the habit doesn't exist anymore. The self that created the habit was just a mental construct that arose in those previous situations and passed away as those, it dissolved as those situations ended. And the self that arises in this moment is a brand new self, and it's not the self that's responsible for that in the past. It is the self that's responsible for what you do now. And if you find that self wanting to punish the five aggregates for being the way they are, then that's another thing for you to be mindful of and restrain, uh, and, and practice restraint with. Because yes, it's a tendency we have, is to blame ourselves and be angry with ourselves for the way we're being. And that does not help. The only possible benefit that comes from that is it may further increase our motivation to get beyond this. But that's a pretty small benefit for the harm that it does. And being angry at yourself is really no different than being angry at somebody else. It still reinforces the karma of becoming angry. So if you want to overcome anger, then you want to guard against anger against yourself as much as anyone else. And guilt and all of these other things. Yeah. All these other bad habits. Yes. Uh, you know, earlier you said something extremely important. I almost brushed it off. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, look at all these difficult situations good opportunity. I thought, okay, that's one way to just comfort our mind. But it's indeed extraordinarily uh, true because some people, they go to the forest, they practice in seclusion for a long time. They think they're really, really well accomplished, but when they come out, they're really irritable. They realize, wow, you know, all this accomplishment is actually, you know, an illusion. Because when they actually, you know, deal with people, they don't have any, you know, uh, patience, you know, they have a lot of aversion. Yeah. And and, and so these indeed are really, really good opportunities. They are truly good opportunities for us to really understand those problems. These are not, these, you know, these opportunities shouldn't be just thrown away lightly. Yeah, so I thought you should have. Uh, when you live in a rural area, you see one car every few miles. Yeah, you know, you get to wave and a smile. You wave everybody, and you get to California. <laughs> <laughs> When I came back from the last class, I came back like very happy, very calm. And when I went to 
I immediately became irritated with everybody that I was working with because I was like, oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my friend was like, calm down. Calm down. My, my friend kept reminding me, you know, and, and then I started like cussing. Mm-hmm. And my nephew goes, stop that. Because remember where you came from and remember what you were trying to do. And so I had people reminding me, and I was like, oh, why are you afraid I gotta go back to do this again? You know, that's why I'm here again. So now I can go back. <laughs> And I'm trying to deal more with this because it's going to be in front of my face every day. So uh, I can deal with it better now. But uh, for three years, I was like, like very irritable with everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. Like a few years ago, after after a retreat, I was really irritable. I was like, whoa, what the heck? I just came back from a retreat. How come I'm still irritable? Yeah. <laughs> I'm even more irritable than, than before. It's just amazing how many people are so, uh, doing so many things unconsciously. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just for self-motivation or yes. whatever. And that's the first thing that you pick up, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, I think this is uh, a good talk. So just so that you know, we've been going over the Eightfold Path. We covered the section on virtue, and we covered uh, uh, right effort, which is one of the three parts of the section on concentration. The other two are right concentration and right mindfulness, and so which is what we do in our meditation. I said that section on concentration. It's a section on meditation. So, so you practice you practice right effort the way we've talked about, and at the same time you're improving your skills in your meditation practice, uh, and that that is the right concentration and uh, right mindfulness is applying this being mindful in every part of your life. So, we we can talk more about right mindfulness tomorrow, and the way it contributes to the next stage of. of the path, but this is the beginning. The beginning of the path, the foundation of the path, is virtue and right effort and making these changes in yourself. So um, yeah, enough stuff I think to continue on with tomorrow. But right now, let's take a couple of minutes to stretch, and then we'll sit until the building.